0: Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest, I'm David Tate, and this is part 36 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we kicked off Matthew chapter 11 by detailing an incident between Jesus and some of John the Baptist's disciples, which basically paved the way for a section where Jesus was beginning to address the crowds around him, and he was able to address three main things. He talked about his own identity, the identity of John the Baptist, and the identity of the current generation of people, his current audience, and how they were responding to him. And this really paved the way for what's going to be an increasingly dominant theme in Matthew's gospel, which is the rejection of Jesus, right? We've begun to see this back in like Matthew chapter nine, where we began to see people kind of reacting to Jesus a little bit differently. And they weren't really just broadly accepting him like we had seen earlier on. And this is going to be increasingly prevalent as the gospel progresses. We're going to see Jesus get rejected more and more and more. And so what we saw at the end of last week is that Jesus kind of began to rebuke the people and he was getting onto them for basically not being satisfied with anything. Whether you have John the Baptist showing up and fasting and not drinking, or you have Jesus showing up and partying and drinking, nobody's satisfied, right? They always want something different. And really, it seems like they're just there for a show and they're not actually there for God. That same theme is going to continue into these verses we're covering today. We're not covering that many verses, but we're going to see Jesus addressing that same theme, and we're going to get it and we're going to get to some of the most popular verses in Matthew's gospel, right? Uh, and so, what we're going to see here is what I've called the invitation of a rejected Messiah, and it's actually kind of shocking whenever you look at this section because a lot of the times people will quote Matthew chapter eleven verses twenty-eight through thirty. And they failed to realize that what Jesus is saying here flows directly from his rebuke of people for rejecting him, which is very interesting, right? Because these final few verses that we're going to talk about here are some of the most comforting verses in all of the gospel, some of the most comforting words that Jesus ever spoke, but they come immediately off the heels of him saying some of his most scathing remarks. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hop right in. And we're going to start with Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, and we are going to see Jesus begin to denounce some of the very cities that he ministered to the most. This is what we read. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right, so here in these few verses, we have a reference to a bunch of different cities, right? We've got Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon, Capernaum, I mean, technically Hades as well, uh, and Sodom, right? So we have all these different cities mentioned. So as we walk through this, I'm going to give us some historical context behind some of these just to kind of explain why Jesus is drawing these parallels. But it's safe to say, just at face value, Jesus is not happy in these instances, right? Um, he's turning to the people that he ministered to the most, right? I mean, the cities that he's talking about here, uh, specifically Choracene, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these are all the cities that are found in the northern to northwestern region of Galilee, Right? So you've got Choracin and Bethsaida, both of which— um, is a, a fishing village right on the edge of the water, and then Choracin's a little bit away from the water, but not that far. You can see the Sea of Galilee from it. And then you've got Capernaum, which is actually going to be the city that Jesus himself made his headquarters during his ministry. These are the three cities that he's talking about here, and he curses them, he denounces them, and he basically promises judgment upon them. And this is very different from the Jesus that we've kind of grown to expect— from the Gospels, and it's actually quite shocking because by the time you get to the end of this chapter, just a few verses from now, Jesus is going to say that he's gentle and lowly of heart, and you've got to learn to reconcile that, because on one hand, Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly of heart, but that gentle and lowly Jesus is also willing to curse cities and promise destruction upon them, right? In these verses right here, we really see Jesus stepping into the role of a prophet, and quite fittingly, a lot of the things that he's going to say here sound exactly like what the prophet said back in the Old Testament. We're going to quote a lot of prophets in today's uh, lesson. So let's walk through this. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So right off the bat, we kind of see the nature of why he is renouncing them, right? Why he is denouncing them right? These are the places where he did most of his ministry. This makes a lot of sense because, like I said, all you can do, you can just go Google a picture of like just a map of Galilee at this time period, and you'll see where Choracin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are, right? They're all very close to one another, and if Jesus' headquarters were in Capernaum, you can imagine that he did a lot of work in Choracin and Bethsaida as well, right? So, these are the three cities that he's mainly dealing with here, and the reason why he's denouncing them is is because they did not repent. And your question might be, well, why didn't he denounce all these other cities? Why didn't he denounce, I don't know, New York City, right? (laughs) I mean, I know that's obviously kind of hyperbolic because New York City didn't exist at this time period. But my whole point is, why these three cities in particular? Well, right off the bat, just because of the description here, we kind of get the idea that the reason why he's denouncing them goes back to the whole adage that uh, good old Ben Parker said to Spider-Man in all the different versions of the story, right? With great power comes great responsibility, right? You could also say with greater revelation comes greater expectation, right? Jesus had blessed these people by choosing to dwell with them, right? The son of David, right? The heir of Jerusalem, the one who should sit on the throne of Jerusalem, he decided to minister, not in Jerusalem, but he decided to go to Galilee to minister. And if you remember, that was a big thing in the Gospel of Matthew. He cited that passage about those who walk in darkness seeing a great light, right? If you go back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, I think it was chapter 2, right? He mentions that Jesus ministering in Galilee is really just an amazing act of grace where he is going to these people and ministering amongst them, right? This is an amazing privilege. The Messiah has chosen to begin preaching the kingdom up in Galilee. He's given them some He's given them an amazing privilege, but with that privilege comes a responsibility, right? They are responsible for responding to him, and these people did not repent. With great power comes great responsibility. With greater revelation comes greater expectation. Jesus revealed more to these people than he did to anyone. I mean, think about it. They saw most of his miracles. I haven't seen one of Jesus' miracles, right? I wasn't there right? But these people were. For three and a half years, they got to see him doing some of the most amazing things in the world, and they had no reason to not repent. None of us have any reason to not repent, right? I didn't see these miracles, yet I am without excuse. How much less excuse did they have? Yet they didn't repent, and therefore Jesus is going to get onto them, and he's going to say, woe to you, Corazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. All right, let's talk about those two cities. Um, For Corazin, I hate to break it to you, but the only time that we actually hear Khorasin mentioned in the Gospels and in the Bible altogether is in this passage, right? And in the parallel passage, I believe it is in the Gospel of Mark, right? So the only time you hear Khorasin mentioned is in the parts where Jesus is rebuking the cities, Um, but Khorasin is an actual city, and um, actually, whenever I got to go to Israel a year ago, right? Uh, I've been to Israel several times, but whenever I got to go the most recent time, I actually got to go to Khorasin for the very first time. And it seems like Jesus' curse was fulfilled, because if you go to Khoracin nowadays, it is nothing but black rock ruins. Once again, just go Google it. It's, a, it's really a pretty crazy sight, because you just see how much it's been demolished. Right? Well, Jesus says, woe to you Khoracin. Bethsaida, however, we do read about a little bit more. Uh, Bethsaida is mentioned here in Matthew, but it's also mentioned in Mark and Luke, so all three Synoptic Gospels mention Bethsaida uh, to just, in just various different ways. Uh, Jesus did some different miracles there that we specifically hear about. But the Gospel of John actually teaches us that Bethsaida was apparently the city of Peter and Andrew before they moved to Capernaum, right? So, Peter and Andrew, their brothers. Uh, apparently, they grew up in Bethsaida before moving over to Capernaum, uh, and so that's another connection that we have to the city of Bethsaida, right? But like I said, all these cities are connected, right? They're all really close to one another. They're just within, like, just a few mile radius. If Honestly, they could be within a one-mile radius. I didn't actually map it all out, but they're all, they're all really close to one another, right? You got Bethsaida, Capernaum, Choracin, he's not addressing Capernaum yet. He's going to address Capernaum separately. And that's because in addition to these other cities, Capernaum has even more responsibility because that's the place where he made his dwelling, right? But first he talks about Choracin and Bethsaida, right? The second and third place where he did most of his miracles. He says, woe to you. And then he's going to compare them to Tyre and Sidon. He says, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It's quite fitting that Jesus compares Khorasin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon because, like I mentioned, Khorasin and Bethsaida are very close to one another, and Tyre and Sidon were basically twin Phoenician cities up north of Israel, right? So if you just went directly north uh, into the region of Lebanon, right, you would get to Tyre and Sidon, which were two of the most successful port cities in the ancient world. Right, even be outside of the Bible, you hear Tyre and Sidon being mentioned all the time, and within the text of Scripture, Tyre and Sidon are brought up a whole lot. Right, and usually they're brought up right next to one another, um, just because they were viewed as twin cities. Right, one didn't go without the other. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Right, so Tyre and Sidon were always mentioned alongside one another, not always, but usually, and so it makes sense for Jesus to draw the comparison. Right, you got course and Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon, but beyond that, you might want to like, okay, well. Why is he comparing them to Tyre and Sidon? Because later on, he's going to compare Capernaum to G- Sodom, and we're familiar with the story of Sodom, right? More people, like, you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that Sodom is not a good place, right? I mean, we literally have a word nowadays, sodomy, that comes from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so people typically know about Sodom, but less people know about Tyre and Sidon. So let's do a little bit of a recap and talk about the history of Tyre and Sidon from a biblical perspective. Uh, So like I said, they're like these twin Phoenician cities just directly north of Israel, and their relationship with Israel actually started off pretty darn good, uh, because during the reigns of King David and King Solomon, they actually have a really good working relationship with Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, right? So whenever it comes to David building his own palace, and then Solomon building his palace complex, and building the temple, Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, was basically just shipping them cedars from Lebanon throughout this whole ordeal right and so whenever you look at the united monarchy of israel um, the relationship with tyre was really really good and it seems like the king of tyre actually had come to worship yahweh the god of israel which is really really impressive and so the story starts off on a positive note but once the kingdom splits apart uh, during the reign of rehoboam and jeroboam right and the kingdom becomes the divided kingdoms of israel and judah we see that suddenly Tyre and Sidon begin to look a little bit more negative, right? Not too long into the divided kingdom, there's this king named Ahab who marries a Sidonian princess named Jezebel. Now, you might not be familiar with Tyre and Sidon that much, but most people are familiar with the name Jezebel, right? Jezebel is not a good lady. She is horrible, she is a Baal worshiper, and therefore she is a pagan idolater. This lets us know a little bit about the state of Tyre and Sidon at this time period, and this might start hinting at what Jesus is getting at from this comparison, right? So Tyre and Sidon are a pagan people who came to worship the God of Israel, but later on they turned their back on the God of Israel and returned back to their pagan ways. And as a result, whenever you actually look into the Old Testament prophets, they really have nothing good to say to Tyre and Sidon, and I figured I would just like quote some of those examples just for you to hear them. Isaiah chapter 23 says this, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed, without a house or harbor. It is revealed to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile, was her revenue, and she was the nation's gain. Be ashamed, O Sidon. For the sea speaks, the strong defense of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up choice men nor reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in travail at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. One thing that we're going to see throughout a lot of these things I'm going to quote here is that Tyre and Sidon, according to the prophets, is going to be destroyed. In the instance I just quoted, basically, Isaiah is telling the ships of Tarshish to mourn because they're going to be sending their ships across the sea to go park at, you know, Tyre and Sidon, which I mentioned were port cities, right? So the ships are going to be going across there, and whenever they go to pull into port, they're going to see that Tyre and Sidon lie in ashes. And so Isaiah says, oh, ships of Tarshish, you better start weeping now. And Isaiah says a lot more about Tyre and Sidon, but for now, I just want to cite a few examples. Let's go to the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, we read this, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me, this is God speaking, swiftly and speedily I will return your recompense on your head, Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my desirable treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and the sons of Jerusalem to the sons of the Greeks in order to remove them far from their borders, behold, I am going to rouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Right. So this is God rebuking Tyre and Sidon because they are playing a part in Israel and Judah's oppression and in the hardship Israel and Judah is going about. Right. Tyre and Sidon, they came in, they attacked, they stole some of Israel and Judah's stuff, and now they're helping the Greeks come in and further afflict God's people. And so, Tyre and Sidon have this reputation for not only being backsliders who worshiped God and then went back to their pagan ways, but they also have this reputation for bringing the people of God into bondage. I think all of that is at play with what Jesus is saying to Khorasin in Bethsaida. Zechariah chapter nine, verses one through four, says this: "The oracle of the word of Yahweh is against the land of Hadrak, which uh, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward Yahweh." And Hamath also, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, because they are very wise. So Tyre built herself a tight fortification, and tied up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and strike her wealth down into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Jeremiah, uh, and, and so, sorry, uh, and she will be consumed with fire. And so, what we have being stated here is that Tyre and Sidon are examples of, port cities that were deemed very important according to the world, and as a result of their esteemed importance, they elevated themselves in pride, and through elevating themselves in pride, they turned away from Yahweh, and therefore, God is going to destroy them, and they oppressed God's people, which motivates God all the more to destroy them. I think all of that is playing into what Jesus is saying to Corazin and Bethsaida. Right? Because they might not be port cities like Tyre and Sidon, but they are coastal regions, right? They're on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has showed up to them and has made them beautiful and rich in a different way than Tyre and Sidon, right? Tyre and Sidon were rich because they had physical wealth. Kodasin and Bethsaida were made rich because the Son of God came to them and performed a lot of his miracles amongst them. But these people who should have turned and worshiped God chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And even though there was a king in Israel, they acted as if there was no king in Israel. In in very many ways, it's kind of like it was in the days of Judges, in the Judges, when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, right? Their king came to them, but they did not acknowledge him. Instead of recognizing that he was there to make them rich, they decided to exalt themselves, not repent, and push back against him. Therefore, Jesus says, they are going to be destroyed. If you go look at the other prophets, uh, prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel also talk about Tyre and Sidon, and I believe Amos mentions, it could be Sidon, but not Tyre, I don't remember exactly. Um, Another thing to know is that Sidon, uh, whenever you go to the book of Genesis, was actually the firstborn of Canaan. And so as a result of their backsliding, right, so remember Canaan was the son of Ham, the son of Noah, right? Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan. And so uh, whenever you actually just consider Sidon's backstory and Tyre's backstory and all that stuff, in many ways, Sidon becomes the perfect example and the prototype of a Canaanite town, right? Embodying opposition to the people of God. Well, here Jesus has come proclaiming his kingdom and Capernaum, uh, sorry, and Bethsaida and Koraşin have rejected him in many ways, kind of like Sidon and Tyre being the prototype Canaanite towns. And so what we see with these people is that they represent a pagan people who returned to worship Yahweh, only to turn back to their own gods and to be destroyed. That is what Jesus is saying here, right? Quote and Bethsaida, they saw the things that he came and did, and maybe at first they were intrigued. Maybe, like Tyre and Sidon, they turned and began to embrace him at first, but eventually their hearts became hardened again, and they backslid, and they turned back away, and they did not truly repent. They were intrigued by the spectacle, but they did not actually follow into discipleship. Very similar to what he was saying in the previous verses whenever he was rebuking the people for John the Baptist, right? When he's saying, what were you going to see? Were you looking for a a reed shaking in the wind? Were you looking for a man in soft clothing? That's kind of what happened with Chorasin and Bethsaida, right? They heard about Jesus. They came to see what he was about, but then they decided ultimately not to repent. They saw the spectacle, but they did not receive the message. And therefore, he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's interesting, right? He says that these pagan people who backslid are going to have it better on the day of judgment than the people of Choracene and Bethsaida who got to see the miracles of Jesus. And that's pretty remarkable if you just think about the implications of that because he is saying that there is a sin worse than a pagan people who come to worship Yahweh only to backslide. And we're going to address this in a second to figure out exactly what that sin is, but we're going to wait until we talk about Capernaum because he's going to say a very similar thing to Capernaum as well. And so he moves on in verse 23 and says, And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. All right, so if Koresin and Bethsaida... Are compared to Sire and uh, sorry Tyre and Sidon. Uh, if that's the comparison made there, well, Jesus compares Capernaum to Sodom, which is very intense uh, if you know anything about Sodom. But I think once again this begins to make sense if you just think about it for a little bit. Uh, so what we know about Capernaum is that, like I mentioned earlier, this is the place where Jesus decided to make his home base. Right? This is where he decided to establish his headquarters after he had been rejected in Nazareth, right? Uh, whenever you compare all the different gospel accounts and you see Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, chronologically speaking, it says that he went down to Capernaum, and that's where he basically made his um, headquarters whenever he was actually conducting his ministry. And so most of his stuff is done in Capernaum. He is not Jesus of Capernaum, he's Jesus of Nazareth, but during his ministry, Capernaum is his headquarters. That's important right? And he is going to draw the comparison to Sodom in a second, but before he even gets to the comparison of Sodom, he actually makes a comparison between Capernaum and, uh, and and with Babylon, right? Because if you actually look at what he says here, he says, and Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will descend to Hades. Well, this is a clear reference to the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is basically, um, he's delivering an oracle against the king of Babylon. Right? And if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, this is what Isaiah says about the king of Babylon. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Right. So Babylon said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will be exalted to heaven. But what does God say to Babylon? Verse 15, nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit right? Well, in Hebrew thought, Sheol is the equivalent of the Greek thought of Hades, right? And so, Babylon wanted to be exalted to heaven, but because of their pride, they were going to be cast down to Sheol. Capernaum wants to be exalted to heaven, but instead, they will be descending down to Hades, right? Jesus is making this parallel here, and if you know anything about Babylon, you know that is not a good comparison to receive, right? Babylon is horrible. Babylon is like the key enemy of God. I mean, whenever you go to Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, it represents like a second false story, right? And then whenever you get to see the Babylonians coming in and destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, that's not very good. When you go to Revelation, Babylon once again is cropping back up. Babylon throughout all of scripture from literally Genesis to Revelation is the prototypical antagonist of God's people, And now Jesus is looking at Capernaum, and he compares them to Babylon. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will descend to Hades. And you might ask, well, why does Jesus bring this up? Well, I think it, once again, ties to the fact that Jesus bestowed upon them a great privilege whenever he chose to make his home there, right? Jesus literally is heaven on earth, right? Jesus is the Son of God made flesh. God introducing himself into history and heaven literally came knocking at Capernaum's door, right? Heaven decided to make its home base in Capernaum, yet they rejected him out of pride, right? And what else is pride but a desire to exalt yourself to heaven, right? That was Babel's whole first thing in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. I will exalt myself to heaven, right? That's what they wanted to do, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. And Capernaum is so blinded by their own pride that they missed out on heaven literally in, fate, in, like, in their presence, right? Heaven came to them, but they were so blind that they failed to see the light that was shining amongst them. And therefore, since they rejected heaven, Jesus says, you will descend to Hades, right? They were so blinded by their own pride that the only destination that they will have in the eyes of God is humiliation. Right? They are going to be cast down to Hades, and they are going to receive the opposite of what they wanted. If they had been humble, they would have seen heaven was right there, and they would have received him, and they would have joined him in those pearly gates one day. But not anymore. Right, These people have rejected Jesus, and therefore, Capernaum will burn. But beyond this, he doesn't stop at the comparison to Babylon. He goes and he explicitly compares them to Sodom in what I would say is probably a far more striking manner than what he even did with Chorasin and Bethsaida in comparing them to Tyre and Sidon. He says, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. This is staggering, right? Because, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah goes down in history as like the embodiment of human evil. Right? Whenever you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, basically it has become the archetype of human wickedness and God's righteous wrath. Right? That is what you think of whenever you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet Jesus says, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what Capernaum had seen, they would have repented. And remember, like, I mean, even before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, if you go back to Genesis 18, you literally see Abraham talking with God and talking about how there's literally no righteous people in Sodom, right? And if there were even 10, God would have spared the whole city. And Jesus says, if those wicked people, there weren't even 10 righteous people in all of Sodom, if, if those wicked people had seen the miracles that Jesus had performed, Sodom would not have been destroyed because apparently they would have repented and be made righteous, right? So what Jesus is saying here is very, very strong, and it gets even stronger if once again, you go back to the prophets and see what the prophets have to say about Sodom. Uh, Because what the prophets will do is what Jesus is doing here. And oftentimes, in order to rebuke the people of Israel and of Judah, what they'll do is they will literally compare Israel and Judah to Sodom. And so when you go to Isaiah chapter 1, the opening verses of Isaiah, he says this, verses 10 and 11, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Now, he's not literally talking about Sodom. He's talking about the rulers of Judah, but he calls them the rulers of Sodom. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, I take no pleasure. This is interesting because what we see here is that apparently the association of Israel and Judah with Sodom is not simply a matter of not being religious enough right? Because here Isaiah compares Israel and Judah to Sodom, but they're still offering sacrifices in the temple. They're still doing things that look like Yahweh worship, but that's not the issue God has with them. God's issue with them is their heart, right? Their heart is not repenting. They might be offering sacrifices. They might be going through the motion of religious activity, but their hearts are far from him, just like the hearts of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? And so it makes sense what Jesus is saying here, because the people of Capernaum, they were going through the motions of religious activity, but their hearts were far from him, just like the people of Judah in Isaiah's day. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 23, you read this. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen an appalling thing, the committing of adultery and walking and lying. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his evil. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her, atab- and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. So, Jeremiah makes the same exact comparison, right? Jeremiah looks at the people of Judah. He sees all the evil they're doing. He sees how they give lip service to God, but they're not actually worshiping God. And he says, they have become like Sodom, right? They are people acting like they're righteous when really there's not even 10 righteous men amongst them. But then I think the big question becomes what was the actual sin of Sodom, right? Because whenever we think of Sodom, the main thing we think of is sodomy. And that's because whenever you read the story, the men of Sodom were wanting to do some pretty messed up things to the angels that God sent there. And to be fair, that is one of the primary sins of Sodom. But let's actually go see what Ezekiel says about the sin of Sodom, because I think this will shed light on why Jesus compares Capernaum to Sodom. In Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, verses 49 and 50, Ezekiel says this behold this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom she and her daughters had lofty pride abundant food and quiet ease but she did not strengthen the hand of the afflicted and needy then they were haughty and committed abominations before me so I removed them when I saw it so there's a few things that Ezekiel highlights there that God held against Sodom right one of them at the very end is that they were proud and they committed abominations right that probably ties into the messy things and the really messed up stuff they were wanting to do to those angels that god sent but the things that ezekiel lists before that are that they had lofty pride abundant food and quiet ease right so they had like they had been provided all these things by god and they were really well off but she did not strengthen the hand of the afflicted and the needy right so really what god was holding against Sodom, is that they had been really blessed by God, but they did not care for the people who came to them, right? Really, the sin is primarily in hospitality. right? They were not being charitable with what they had been given. Now, this should hopefully begin to make you understand what's going on here. If you remember why Lot chose to dwell in Sodom, it was because this place was luxuriant. He compares it to Eden itself. But if you go to the region of Sodom nowadays, it is desert region. Right. So that's how the destruction fell upon Sodom. Right. It took turned Eden into a desert. And now here Jesus is not in the south of Israel, but he's in the north of Israel where things are very luxuriant and verdant. Right. So down in Judea, which is near where Sodom's at, well, that's desert region. Right. That's the Judean desert. But up in Galilee, these are farming villages. This is where people are, you know, there's fishing villages. Right. There's rolling hills of green grass and all sorts of things like that. Well, Jesus is talking to people who are dwelling in a land kind of like Sodom. They have been given all these things by God. They have everything well off. The people of Judea have to come to them for their fish, and they have to come to them for their crops and stuff like that. The people of Capernaum have it really, really well. And beyond that, they had it so well that Jesus himself came and dwelt amongst them. But like the people of Sodom, they reacted to Jesus in an inhospitable manner. Right? Rather than receiving him as the gift that he was, they decided to reject him and to not repent. And so Jesus says to them, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. This is interesting to me. Um, I feel like I say that phrase a lot, but that's because I find a lot of things interesting. Um, Leonard Ravenhill has a book called Sodom Had No Bible. And I actually have had this book for many years, and I've still yet to read it. But that's because I'm still convicted by the title itself, right? Sodom was destroyed by God, despite the fact that they had received no revelation from God, right? They had no Bible, they were a pagan people, and they, you know, I mean, like, 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 there's the fact that they were like they did not have a covenant with God right? They did not have a covenant between God. They were a pagan people. They had received no revelation, yet God still held them accountable for their sin and destroyed them. What Jesus is highlighting here is that the people of Capernaum are no Sodomites, right? They have received so much more revelation. First off, they had the entire 39 books of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament, right? Of the Hebrew Bible. They had all of those that they had been able to study. They should have known who the Messiah was. They should have been able to recognize him when he came to them. And beyond that, when he did come to them, they had all these miracles that testified to who he was, yet they rejected him. That's why what they're doing is worse than Sodom. Sodom had no Bible. They had not only a Bible, but they had the miracles of Jesus testifying to them who he was, yet they still chose to not repent. And so ultimately, I think that what Jesus is getting at here, and he rearticulates it here in verse 24, is that the greater sin facing Uh, Well, the greater sin committed by Quaracin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum compared to Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, the greater sin they've committed is that they were indifferent to Jesus despite the fact that they had received greater revelation than all these people, right? Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, none of them received any of the oracles of God, right? None of them had prophets come marching to their doors and tell them what they were doing wrong, but these people were judged for their sin despite the lack of revelation, But with greater revelation comes greater expectation, right? Jesus came and he ministered amongst these people. And therefore, he says, nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for all of you. Jesus, the light of the world, has come and he has shown amongst them. Yet they have proven themselves to be blind. Like those dwelling in the land of Israel after the death of Joshua, they have grown indifferent to their king and have begun to do what is right in their own eyes. That's what we see happening here, and that's what Jesus is rebuking them for. And so, like it was in the days of Judges, what God's going to do is he is going to send them into oppression, right? They are going to feel the heavy yoke of labor put upon them as a result of their rejecting God in their midst. And as a result, they'll be doomed to destruction. Right? And this introduces us to, like, we've been tracing through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been seeing how Jesus is living out Israel's story. This is, we are in the midst of the book of Judges right now, right? Where the people of Israel, they are not acknowledging their king, who is God. And they are doing what's right in their own eyes. And as a result, God is sending them into these cycles of oppression and deliverance. Oppression and deliverance. Jesus came to them. He presented himself to them. They renounced him. And so he says, woe to you. He denounces them and they will be destroyed. On a personal note, before we even go to these next verses, I just want us to reflect on the fact that we have even more revelation than what they did, right? We don't have just 39 books of the Old Testament, we have all 66 books of the Bible. We also have the full ministry of Jesus in context that was handed to us in those 27 books of the New Testament, right? So we have greater understanding, greater context. And if we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us to help testify to us about these things. And so we need to be very, very careful because Sodom had no Bible, yet they were held accountable. Choracene and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they had received more revelation and they were held accountable as well. We have even more than that. And so before we move on to this, I just want to issue a warning. Make sure that you're responding to Jesus correctly. Don't just give him empty religious activity. That's what he's about to talk about. Give him your heart. Give him your everything. This then leads us to the end of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light now the things that jesus says right here might seem out of place right because if you look at the first verses that we talked about jesus is rebuking cities he is denouncing them and his words are white hot and scathing and then right here there's a shift of perspective where all of a sudden we almost imagine Jesus talking in like a Buddha-like tone, where he's very Zen, and he says, I praise you, Father. But I want to argue that this flows directly from what Jesus just said, right? So he just pointed out that these people have chosen to renounce Jesus, and they have not repented because of their pride. And you would think that Jesus was only upset at this, but there's actually a certain pleasure that Jesus takes in this, because their rejection of him highlights a key aspect of the kingdom that God is establishing. Right? This kingdom is not for the proud. This kingdom is not for the wicked. Right, This kingdom is not for the people who boast and are willing or who want to work their way to the top. That's not who this kingdom is for, contrary to any other kingdom on earth. Right, The kingdoms of earth, those are made for the proud, for the boastful, the ones who are willing to cheat their way to the top. That's not God's kingdom. And so, even though he is furious at them, and even though he denounces them for rejecting him, at the same time, he can't help but praise God for the type of kingdom that he is establishing. And so he says, at that time, or so he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So usually in worldly kingdoms, it is the wise and the intelligent who receive the accolades, but not in the Father's kingdom. Right, not in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. Right, the people who typically would be exalted in worldly standards, they're not the ones who are going to receive it. One really cool thing that we see in these verses right here is the perfect blend and the tension of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Right, where God is totally in charge, but man is still held responsible for his choices. Right, God is not forcing man to renounce Jesus, but. God will only reveal himself to the ones who are humble enough to receive Jesus, right? And so man is responsible for the choices he makes, and he will be held accountable for those choices. God knows the choices man will make, but he's not forcing them to make those choices. At the same time, God will only reveal certain things to the people who he recognizes are humble enough to make the right choice. Right? So, there's a lot of beautiful tension that we see in this verse right here. And we're going to get into some pretty dense theology, uh, and I'm going to try to hopefully simplify it a little bit. But the main thing that you need to see here is that in the Father's kingdom, the wise and intelligent are the ones who prove themselves hard-hearted. Right? That's really what Jesus is getting at here, and it's paving the way for the great invitation that he's going to offer in a few verses. Right? The wise and the intelligent are Well, those are the ones who usually get the job promotions. Those are usually the ones who are praised during parades. Those are the ones who typically make it onto magazine covers, but not in the Father's kingdom. In the Father's kingdom, the wise and intelligent, they're the ones who usually are so hard-hearted that they're not willing to actually respond to God whenever he shows up, right? On the other hand, it's the humble, it's the babes, it's the infants who will receive the kingdom of God right? The hard-hearted ones, the proud, they're the ones who refuse to acknowledge their king, who insist on doing what is right in their own eyes because they think they know best. Infants, however, they're not going to think they know best, right? An infant, they cry out to their mom and their dad because they recognize that they can't provide for themselves, and when they're hungry, they weep, and they cry, and they throw a tantrum because they need their parent. That's what Jesus is looking for in the kingdom right? He's not looking for people who say there's no king. He's not looking for people who do what's right in their own eyes. He's looking for young infants. He's looking for children with childlike faith, people who are willing to acknowledge that they can't work their way anywhere, that they can't be proud because they have nothing to boast in. That's what he's looking for, and that's what he's praising the Father for. Because Jesus is saying, you know what? I am so glad that these people have rejected me because I wouldn't want proud people like this in the kingdom. I don't want people like this to receive me, because if they do that, then that is totally contrary to the kingdom. If they want to receive me, they, f- they must first deny themselves, humble themselves, pick up their cross, and follow, right? There's no way to actually become part of the kingdom without humbling yourself first, without repenting first. If you think you're wise and intelligent, you have not even begun. make your way into the kingdom and so he praises the father and he says yes father for this was well pleasing in your sight he recognizes that god like himself enjoys this right god does not want the proud to be exalted he wants the humble to be exalted and he wants the proud to be debased and so jesus praises the father which then leads him into the next part right he says all things have been handed over to me by my father right so The father hid these things, quote, from the hard-hearted people, but all things, quote, have been given to Jesus, right? These things that have been hidden from the hard-hearted people are the things of the kingdom, right? The miracles that Jesus has been performing, these things have been hidden from the people because they're so hard-hearted, they do not understand the message and they will not receive Jesus and they will not repent, right? They'll see the spectacle, but they won't allow the spectacle to lead them into genuine faith, right? So those things have been hidden. But Jesus points out that the kingdom things are but the beginning, right? Those things have been hidden, but all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here we're still speaking in the context of revealing God to people, right? What does it look like to have a natural and actual relationship with God? And what Jesus is going to begin to do here, and what he's going to especially do in the following three verses, is he is going to contrast his method of teaching with the method of teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, right? He's not going to explicitly mention the scribes and Pharisees here, but that's what he definitely has in mind. Because as we've seen so far in the previous chapters, and as we're going to see in the chapters to come, the biggest stumbling block to Jesus' ministry, or the, I should rather, I should say, the biggest stumbling block to people receiving Jesus' ministry and the biggest stumbling block to people repenting is the religious leaders at this time period, right? Those are the people who are enslaving Israel. Those are the people who are putting a heavy yoke upon their shoulders. Those are the people who are making all these other people into ones who think that they're wise and intelligent because the scribes and Pharisees, they're the ones who are wise and intelligent in their own eyes. Right? Whereas it's the lowly people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those are the ones who they recognize are not wise and intelligent. They recognize that they are babes who need to repent. And so they've been flocking to Jesus, whilst the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the elders of Israel, those are the ones who are hard-hearted. And so Jesus is going to begin to subtly contrast them, and the way he begins to do it in verse 27 is by pointing out—once again, it's all subtle because he doesn't explicitly mention them—is that Jesus— like the scribes and Pharisees has received something that was handed over to him, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, he's going to get onto them about this in the future, and he's already gotten onto them about this in the past. They have received the traditions that were handed over to them, right? This is where they have taken the Torah and they have constructed this whole oral Torah where they built upon the law and they built a hedge upon the law where they really began to just add one thing to another. And they argued that you needed to do those things in order to access God. Well, by contrast, Jesus, he is not going to have that oral Torah. That's what he's going to get to when he talks about his yoke. He's going to say, my yoke is a lot easier than the yoke of the Pharisees. But Jesus, like the Pharisees, is arguing that his way is the only way to access God, right? The scribes and Pharisees said, if you want to have a right relationship with God, you need to follow our rules, our principles, our teachings. You need to submit to the yoke of Torah. Well, Jesus says, well, no, it's my yoke you've got to submit to. And he explains why here. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. He says, if you want a right relationship with God, you've got to go through me, because no one truly knows me except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except me. And so, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, subtle wink, if the scribes and the Pharisees are telling you that they are the ones who know the way of the Father, I hate to break it to you, but they're getting it wrong jesus by contrast he is not right he is the son of god he is the one who came from the father he knows the father well he knows how to lead the people to the father and he is not going to force them to submit to the yoke of torah in the same way right or well it's not that he's going to force them to submit to the yoke of torah he's going to define the yoke of the torah in a different manner right And he is trying to teach them to humble themselves and to realize they can't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. They can't be the wise and intelligent. They have to be infants. They have to be young babes. They have to repent. And so this is where Jesus begins to give out his great invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, like I mentioned, the scribes and the Pharisees, um, like, like he doesn't explicitly mention them here, but it's very evident, given the context of Matthew, that this is who he has in mind, right? He's contrasting himself with them, right? The reasons why Capernaum and Bethsaida and all of the people are rejecting him is because the scribes and the Pharisees are leading them astray. Right, the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who are leading the people into bondage, into a much heavier yoke, and they are placing all these heavy burdens upon them. And Jesus arguing that the burdens that are being placed upon them are unnecessary burdens. Right, all these extra laws that the people have created, all those extra things, all those are unnecessary because only the Son knows the Father, and only the people who the Son chooses to reveal the Father to will also know the Father. And the son has made it clear that he and the father agree that the only people who he's going to reveal the father to are the ones who are gentle and lowly like him, right? You can't be wise and intelligent and have the father revealed to you because you're trying to work your way there. You're trying to submit to a yoke that is not the yoke of God, right? And so Jesus says, that's not how I work right? If you want the Father revealed to you, you've got to go through me. What Jesus is saying here is the same thing he says in John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's what he's saying right here. He says, I am the only way. And so, all those things, those extra yokes that are being put upon you, those are bad yokes. Those are unnecessary yokes. It's one thing for you to choose to hold yourself accountable and go the extra mile. But whenever you start teaching the traditions of men like they're the commandments of God, then we've got a really big issue. And Jesus says, those yokes, they're not necessary. So he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus right here, just to be clear with this, he is speaking as God, right? There is no rabbi on the face of the planet who would dare make a boast as big as this, right? Did you say, come to—I mean, think about that, right? Imagine if I look to you on this YouTube channel— or on the podcast, however you're listening to this. What if I said to you, come find me and I will be the one to give you rest to your souls. You would think that I was getting ready to start a cult, right? Humans don't speak this way. Jesus is speaking this way because he says that he is the son of the father. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. And he is speaking with the authority of God in the flesh. The rabbis wouldn't say this stuff, right? They would say, submit to Torah and it will give you rest but the way they defined the yoke of Torah was vastly different. Uh, And just in case, I guess I haven't explained this yet, the word yoke, right? We think, like, we don't use the word yoke a lot nowadays. But yoke was a common metaphor. Um, It's basically like this long wooden beam that you would put on your shoulders, right? Yoke was a metaphor for servitude or slavery, right? And... Uh, whenever you go throughout the whole Old Testament, yoke is an ongoing metaphor for slavery. And the early, like the rabbis and stuff, they picked up on this language, right? So if you actually go read the early rabbinic texts, they speak of a thing called the yoke of Torah, right? And so if you go to Pirkei Avot, um, you read this. Rabbi Nehunya bin Hakana said, Whoever takes upon himself the yoke of Torah, they remove from him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns, and whoever breaks off from himself the yoke of Torah, they place upon him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns, right? So what we see when we examine the rabbinic text is that they had this belief about the quote, yoke of Torah, right? There was this yoke that came with the law, right? And you had to submit to the law and you had to walk according to its standards in order to be right with God. And this comes from the Old Testament, right? When you look at the Old Testament, there is a certain expectation and a demand placed upon the people of Israel. They must submit to the law. And if they're not submitting to the law, that testifies that their hearts are not right before God. Once again, I mean, not once again, I haven't said it today, um, but I've said this before. Um, Salvation was always by grace through faith, right? The law never saved anybody. But as a member of the household of Israel, If you were living with the people of Israel, you were expected to follow the law because it was an outward demonstration of your inner faith, right? And so there was a yoke of Torah, but what the scribes and the Pharisees did is they came along and they made the yoke such a heavy yoke so that people who were trying to obey it were weak and heavy laden under the burden of that yoke right? I mean, just to have a Sabbath day, right? The Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest, but they came up with all these rules that had to be applied just in order to have a day of rest. I mean, that was exhausting, right? And you see Jesus getting in trouble for this all the time. Jesus is performing miracles and he is making people's lives better. And the scribes and the Pharisees come up and they rebuke him for breaking their oral Torah, right? They are break. He is breaking their, their definition of yoke of Torah, right? And they say, you are breaking the law. Jesus isn't breaking the law. He's not breaking God's law. He's breaking their law. And their law was messed up, right? They were giving the people an unnecessary yoke, an overly heavy burden. And Jesus says, I'm not here to do that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I I, I actually think that's such a great statement. I I just want to sit here and reflect on it. Um, He will give us rest right? Now, what are the words of Augustine? Our souls are restless, O God, until they find rest in thee. That's what Jesus promises, right? I will give you rest, right? He will do what the law could not do, right? Moses, the giver of the law, he could take the people to the edge of the promised land, but he couldn't guide them in. He could only help them see inside. It was Joshua who led them into the promised land. Well, Jesus' name comes from Joshua, Right, And so Jesus says, I can do for you what the law could not. The law could take you to the edge of the Jordan. The law could help you see into the promised land, but it cannot give rest to your souls. I will give you rest. Right? These scribes and these Pharisees, they can give you all these rules on how how to have the perfect Shabbat, how to have the perfect day of rest, but they can't give you rest. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. It's just amazing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus finds no contradiction between saying he is gentle and humble of heart, while also having the audacity to claim that rest is found in him, right? If any human said that rest was found in them, that would be the most arrogant, um, megalomania, like, 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 this, this would be the most narcissistic thing to say in the world for any normal human. Jesus literally says, I will give you rest. Rest is found in me. And in the very next sentence, he says he's gentle and humble in heart. (laughs) And that's because he's not boasting here. He's telling the truth. And he's not saying this in arrogance. Like he's, he's not trying to elevate himself here. He is trying to serve the people. And he is trying to, like the judges, step in and deliver the people who are willing to cry out to the Lord under the bondage of oppression. Once again, if you go back to the book of Judges, there's this cycle the people would turn to idolatry and God would allow them to be oppressed. But then if they repented and they cried out during their oppression, God would raise up a judge to deliver them. Jesus is saying, I am that judge, right? Right now you are burdened by a heavy yoke and you have all these demands being placed upon you that you cannot meet. And people are telling you that these demands are the things that make you right with God. And Jesus says, none of those things are going to make you right with God. The only thing that's going to make you right with God is if you come to me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus is saying here. Come to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He's quoting the scriptures there. One thing I do want to highlight here is that Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And then in verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus does not say he does not have a yoke. So I do not want you to misinterpret me here and think that I am saying that once you come to Christ, you can go do whatever you want. That's not what Jesus says. There is a yoke, right? And once again, if yoke represents servitude, that means that we are slaves of Christ Jesus. I don't think we should be surprised whenever you actually go read the rest of the New Testament and the apostles identify themselves as just that, right? James, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, right? We are called to be slaves of Jesus but there's nothing better than being a slave to Jesus, right? Every single one of us are going to be slaves to something. We can be slaves to our desires. We can be slaves to the Torah. We can be slaves to anything and everything in the world. But the only thing that is worth being a slave to is the gentle and lowly master that Jesus is, right? The gentle and humble master, the one who will not oppress us, the one who will not give us a burden too heavy to bear, but the one who will give us a yoke that is not heavy, a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light, a master that will give us rest to our souls. Right? That's the slavery that we want. Right, Why would we enslave ourselves to this harsh taskmaster who's going to treat us like the Egyptians treated the Israelites? Why would we enslave ourselves to these harsh taskmasters that would act like the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Why would we do that? Don't do that. Because if you do that, you are only doing it out of pride. You're trying to demonstrate what you can endure. Hate to break it to you. We're not as strong as we think we are. Babylon thought that they could exalt themselves, but they are going to get cast down to Sheol. Tyre and Sidon thought the same thing. Sodom thought the same thing. What they all have in common, they're all lying in ashes. Right? But for the one who is like an infant, the one who humbles himself, the one who cries out in the midst of their oppression, if we repent, then God, just like in the days of judges, will raise up a judge. Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate judge. And that judge will deliver us from the oppressive yoke of bondage. And there will be a king, not only in Israel, but in our hearts. And we won't do what's right in our own eyes, but we will bear his yoke. And we will do what is right in his eyes. And day after day, we will pray, not my will, but yours be done. Come Lord Jesus, right? We will not just do our own thing. We will not pray a magic prayer and then go living our own life. No, we will take his yoke upon us. And we will deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. And we will do it with joy because he has given us rest, recognizing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And there we have Matthew chapter 11. We only covered like 11 verses today, but I managed to talk a lot longer than I originally anticipated. So thank you for dealing with me for that. Um, I look forward to going through more of Matthew later on with y'all. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And I hope that you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Have a great day. Keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha.